Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia. With me today is Nick Agar, a moral philosopher whose work focuses on examining the implications of technological change. His most recent book is How to Be Human in the Digital Economy, published by MIT Press. Nick, thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. So I'm looking forward to chatting about your recent work, but I was hoping you'd indulge in some discussion of your earlier contributions in environmental ethics, and in particular, your book, Life's Intrinsic Value, which I teach in my environmental law class and which is now in its third decade. Um, That book remains one of the leading biocentric accounts of uh, environmental ethics, and um, and I'd be curious to hear how, you know, what, what here you reflect a little bit on how those ideas have aged, whether you um, have updated your views or, um, or just kind of moved on um, and, and so on. So the way maybe just I would quickly for our audience summarize uh, the argument in the book in, you know, 10 seconds or less would be something along the lines of an environmental ethics that's grounded in the preferences, uh, in the book you call them bio-preferences of individual organisms, and we read those preferences off of behavior, structure, and evolutionary history, and we kind of use them for an account of the intrinsic value of non-humans. Um, so maybe the first question is, since I teach this to students, is that a relatively okay summary of, uh, of the argument? I like that summary. Good. Well, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> uh, so, 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 looking back, you know, the book's in its, just entering its third decade. Is this is this an account you still find um, persuasive, or are some counter arguments that you've heard that that you've kind of taken on board over the years? Yeah. No. 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 I. One of the things I love about the philosophical debates I've contributed to is how you know you can do it, engage in a debate at a particular time and contribute something then. But it's fascinating to watch those ideas age and mature. And so mm-hmm. I always think whenever you, know, you, you present views, you know, there are very, in analytic philosophy, there are sometimes very careful people who don't really want to say anything because they'll, yeah, well, it could be wrong or they'll change their minds. I'm very much a believer mm-hmm. of saying something. You put a marker in the sand. And it's certainly there's much I've heard that has led me to modify the views and to look back. So especially some of the later chapters in that book, I sort of say, you know, in a way I give, it's like when you, the thing that I'm most attached, attached to about it, about was this idea that, well, when we look at sort of philosophers, the sort of the bias towards sentience and personhood. And if mm-hmm. you pose the question in that way, then the merely living non-sentient, non-rational beings just count for nothing. And I always think, well, isn't it a role of philosophy to sort of say, well, what happens if you challenge that? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, there are philosophers get into habits and patterns and they're difficult to break out of. So that's the thing I definitely am attached to, that when you say that, well, because that that sort of non-sentient, that, I don't know, that that plant is non-sentient. I mean, Peter Singer's famous line about, you know, if a tree's roots get flooded and it dies, there's nothing to take account of. Mm-hmm. The, only, the only beings that you would ask would be the people who would say, oh, I liked that tree. And it, that right. seemed to me to be far too narrow. So in a way, the difficult task 
is to work out how you could, how could I get that value? And you sort of, I, it's a conjecture. I love philosophy that's full of conjectures. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of what, what the implications would be, or can we state it in a way that, that makes sense and fits with, with at least some of our yeah. existing intuitions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whenever, like, so sometimes there's a, like Mill's harm principle, that sort of, mm-hmm. I, I believe that that's a pernicious principle in ethics because it sort of basically says, well, look, if there aren't harms that a utilitarian would recognize, then there's nothing. So I always think it's great to sort of say, well, yes, that's obviously a powerful idea. What happens if we challenge it? And what would you say then, just in the in the in the spirit of of discourse, or some of the um, unforeseen implications or counter arguments that you've that you've come across in that work? It's a very, obviously a, uh, in a it's very provocative in the sense of um, in the as you note the history of you know analytic kind of Western moral philosophy, um, very human centered, and even you know a lot of environmental ethics has a has a human centered orientation mm. and is kind of a struggle to come up with anything else. Um, are there challenges to the, to the biocentric account, or at least the one that, that you offered that you, that you find particularly difficult or troubling or interesting? Well, I guess the things, if I was to sort of take back parts of that book, it would be the later chapters where I kind of almost, because I, I, I was doing the hard work, what I perceived as the hard philosophical work of showing the merely alive count for something. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, I mean, in a way, when someone says to you, well, you've got to say something about, you know, I don't know, which species should we say those big issues, the headline issues. And I, I suppose mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing where I'd say, oh, well, I wanted to come up with something. I wanted to prove my relevance. Um, uh-huh. And those are areas where every time I come across a debate, I say, well, well, that's, yeah, I'm still thinking about that. And I do think, I mean, I think the merely alive do count. And that the, one of the worst things that we can do is count them for nothing or only count them in an anthropocentric way. Mm-hmm. My preferences are for human are for the beautiful charismatic species and the ugly ones trash them. That those that's not a very good way to view, to think about the value of, of life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as someone who who's you know, participated in this debate in a, in a broad way over the last several, several decades, are there, are there trends in environmental ethics? And especially at the, at this question of, of intrinsic value, value for life, um, non-anthropocentric views that you think are particularly promising and, and, and have, have made, um, have made headway on some of the, the difficult questions like, you know, how, for example, a difficult question would be, um, assuming that there is value outside of the human domain and even outside the, the domain of sentient sentient life, um, how do we make trade-offs across cross domains and those kinds of questions? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that trade-off question, I mean, in a way, that's part of being rational. As to say, I mean, once you say that every living being is, a, is has some value, well, suddenly the world, I mean, the good thing about a, um, you know, a utilitarian sort of ethic that centers on sentience is you know where the valuable things are. I mean, I, there are some issues because you can certainly look at insects and say, well, is that, could that be sentient? So there are some, there are, there's a big line drawing problem. So you create a lot of value um, and that creates a lot of headaches 
But I often think it's, well, I mean, because you've got to make trade-offs. You can't suddenly right. say, well, yes, I'm every, I mean, in, in the perfect world, no living being would ever die. And it would be wonderful to inhabit that world. But um, we're not in it right now, and we're unlikely to be in it. Um, so how do you make trade-offs? And I sometimes think it's sort of like the difficult task of making those trade-offs is part of the prompt to sort of say, well, look, I don't, yeah, let's just not count these things at all. Mm -hmm. I view it as, I don't know, I mean, there's an analogous issue. Maybe this is an overly provocative analogous an analogy, which suggests that, well, I don't know, the lives of people in the poor world. I mean, we didn't used to have to care about them. Now we do. And annoying, because suddenly we've got to think about, we've got to make trade-offs and worry. We didn't used to have to worry about them at all. But I often think it's sort of in a way the it would be such a hassle objection is not a good one. And so the, the main task, I think, for a moral philosopher in this area is to sort of identify the things that count. Because the worst thing, the worst thing that can happen to you is for some moral judge to say, oh, by the way, you don't count at all. Um, mm -hmm. nothing that happens to you matters. Well, I mean, maybe it matters to you if I find you beautiful because I count. Right. And that's, I think that's a bit of a moral disaster. So I guess my challenge is just to get them on. And then it's sort of like, well, how do you get them on you? I've created, I've made the world messy and complicated. Um, yes, I don't know. I mean, obviously living beings are dying all the time. And if there's got to be, but taking them into account is progress. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, I mean, the, the, the hassle objection is, is an interesting, it's an interesting line because, you know, of course it's true. We, we, part of living in the contemporary world um, and modernity, part of the, maybe part of the, the, what troubles people about modernity is, is the vast interconnection of our lives and the um, kind of overwhelming um, responsibility at some level that that we have, just given our technological circumstances, or or for folks in the West, given our our resources and our ability to do good in the world, if we choose to do that, it's an awful awful lot of responsibility to be saddled with just within the human domain. I mean, that's I think. And yeah. oh no, sorry, I just was going to interject there. I think that's part of the nostalgia for the past, actually. Sort of in a way, what, why do people? I mean. Man, when people are nostalgic for what they imagine the 50s were like, they're imagining at a time when no one had to bother with that. I mean, the, the world mm -hmm. seems so much more simple. Um, you didn't have to worry about the, the sort of the distal effects of your actions and your choices. And now there's all these people telling you you have to care. And you know, I'd rather not. You know, this is, it's actually kind of an interesting, you know, this is a, a thread here with respect to, to kind of technology and, and, and autonomy. Like we, as human beings over the, you know, over the centuries and the millennia, we have developed technologies that enhance our ability to affect change in the, in the world and, and improve our material circumstances um, and our scope of action. And at the same time, we are uh, kind of burdened with the responsibility that that comes along with that, and it's 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 just kind of a, uh, but but nevertheless we don't stop. No, no, we don't stop <laughs> uh, seeking out that technological change. But we do then flock to populists who say, yeah, all these people who are telling you to care about that, forget about it. 
I excuse mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thought that those that that part. Yeah, I wonder if that's historically we could we could think about that if that's part of the appeal of of at least some forms of of populist discourse is to um, certainly othering others yeah. um, and in group out group that kind of thing. That's that's a big part of it. But is it is part of the um, the appeal? arise out of a sense of responsibility or, or responsibilities that people don't feel. Cause you know, another, I mean, I'm kind of going around in circles a little bit, but that part of the trick as well is if people are going to feel responsible for their actions in the world, it is helpful for them to have a moral framework that they can understand and feel comfortable with in order to fit that into. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the trick, tricky thing these days is that, um, people might feel a little at sea in the sense of having a, a felt responsibility for much that goes on in the world without necessarily a one, a confident sense that they know how to navigate that or can make reference to a, to a framework that they feel comfortable with. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. So in a way that's, I think that, I don't know, we, we've connected with populism, but I mean, maybe that's, that's that's a slightly speculative connection, but I think that's largely that's much of the appeal of anthropocentric ethics and in, in the environment mm-hmm. is well, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of suddenly if you look and say that well, there is a moral difference between a non-living slob, slab of concrete and um, a living moss. That as soon as you mm-hmm. say that there's a moral difference. You know, I'd much rather I'd much rather you told me there was no difference. Thank you, because that way I can treat <laughs> right. them identically. Well, actually, I can. I mean, if you look, if I'm an anthropocentrist, are you? I mean, and you love that bit of concrete, I'll care about it too. Now, maybe you're more likely to love the the non-sentient living thing, but it, I have simplified the world for you by saying, well, look, none of that stuff counts. I mean, it counts if you like it. It counts in the way that your iPhone counts. If you like mm-hmm. your iPhone, yeah, then yeah, I'm not going to destroy it, or I'll feel bad about destroying it. Right, or your grandmother's, you know, you know, um, wardrobe or something that she left you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and that's a nice simplifying move, and that has a lot of appeal. But sometimes I think the world is complex, and it's morally complex. Yeah, and then and for in terms of the tools, of course, science. Um, or the scientific worldview or a secular worldview that rides along with that, um, you know, maybe also makes it difficult at the same time if we have a, a more kind of <laughs> uh, a morally thick universe or a morally full universe of interest that we're, we're to account for and we have greater scope of action in that universe due to technology and, and interconnectedness and so on. And at the same time, um, you know, there may have been a there may have been a point in in human history where the moss would have a kind of a spirit that mm. you would just associate with it, or the tree would have a, a spirit that would be associated with it, and so that's a and that would be in a you know that cosmology you would inherit and you would be comfortable with and grow up in, um, and would be a part of a long articulated tradition yeah. of a kind of moral universe that you could exist in and feel comfortable with. And, and, and we've kind of done away with that yeah. as well. Yeah. It's interesting. Isn't it? I like, by the way, I do like morally thick universe. 
So I think that's uh, that's what we need to come back to. But it's interesting, isn't it? When you look at those, the spiritual views that you're talking about, I mean, it's easy to mock them and deride them. And you can sort of say, well, why did they come about? Well, I guess one part is that people just wanted to understand the world and they, they lacked the scientific mm-hmm. tools and evidence, an understanding of evidence that we have. But I guess another thing is that, yes, they did look at the moss and say, yes, that is not, that moss is different morally from that stone. Um, mm-hmm. So they're responding to that. So you can sort of see, well, I don't know, maybe I invent spirits as a theory of how the physical world operates. But maybe also when I'm doing it, I'm, I'm responding to the sense that these things matter. I mean, certain things matter. I have to tell a story about it. And, of course, the stories fall out of fashion. You know, we mm-hmm. don't tell those stories. In the West, the secular West, I mean, you'd get mocked if you tried to tell that story and tell people to take it seriously. But I think if you look at the roots of it, you can say, well, yes, um, maybe the details of that story are wrong, but but the roots of it are, I think, very ethically viable. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, just to, to kind of push that further along, you know, I wonder if the, the Peter Singer's position that the tree, you know, it's just... It's, we can't speak in a, in a sensible way about its interests and, and whether it lives or dies mm. is, is no different than, um, you know, whether a rock mm. is eroded or not. Is that a bigger mistake than the person who attributes um, a kind of a spiritual um, value or, or a spirit, just a kind of a non-physical spirit to the tree and, and accordingly assigns it some value? From a scientific perspective, you know, singers uh, might have more correct beliefs about the you know, predicting the tree's behavior, but from a moral perspective, which which is a larger mistake. Well, I, 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 I'm 100% behind that. Yes, yes. I mean, in a way, whenever... It's great when sort of moral philosophers take a constructive approach to value. So the part of the Peter Singer who says, well, look, these sentient animals can suffer, and right now we're treating them mm-hmm. terribly. Please care. But when he uses that same tool as he does with the tree as a way to exclude things. I think that's often a mistake. And I I suppose the provocative nature of some of Peter Singer's statements about newborns and infanticide. Mm -hmm. So I've written a piece on, uh, I hope this is okay for your podcast. I mean, I think sometimes philosophers engage in what I call moral shit stirring. And (laughs) moral shit, I shit stir you. um, If I just, I don't, I don't mean it seriously. I just want, I don't know, right. maybe, yeah, I don't know, you've got a mole on your forehead or whatever, and I want to mac- mock you, and I offer you some fake advice. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, have you seen a doctor about getting that mole removed? Now, I know you're aware of that mole, but it's sort of in a way I know it will make you uneasy. I think some of the statements that utilitarians, the, the exclusionary sort of sense, the mm-hmm. one that sort of says, who cares about that tree? It's nothing. And also the one that says, oh, this is a sentient newborn, and just if you do kill it, that's fine. Just do it painlessly. Yeah, lethal injection will do. That's the exclusionary. It's not the constructive view. And I, I think that's a terrible mistake, and it's a real disservice to people who, I don't know, the kind of people who do look and say, well, look, look I do view that tree. That, that tree represents my ancestors, 
And of course, our first reaction is to say, well, that's nonsense. Your ancestors are long dead. So how can, anyway, you, you can say that, but I'm basically going to ignore everything. But there's, a, there's something they're latching onto. That tree has moral importance. And, and often it's the case, isn't it, that I think in, in ethics, if we can't see, you know, in a way, it's almost like we, we get too lazy. So if someone says something confusing to us, like, you know, that that river has always passed through that area and it's been, it's of great value to my people. It's sort of like, well, okay, well, I'm not going to try very hard on this, but I know you're speaking, I know, I'll, I'll believe you about how long the, the river's been there, but but the rest of it is nonsense. Yeah, I, I think that sometimes that indicates kind of a philosophical laziness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all mm-hmm. you Sometimes all you yeah. have to do is ask a few questions. What I mean when I say that rock is my ancestor, what are, well, what are, yeah, no, I, don't, I know that, yeah, I know my ancestor's dead, really. Right, there's a, there's a sense in which, I mean, the, the, we can talk and we, the conversation keeps going basically, yeah. right? There's, you know, it, it, it's, it's easy to mistake understand, uh, a misunderstanding for an error, essentially, right? Yeah. A misunderstanding on your part for an error on the other person's part. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and it's lazy to do that. Yeah. Let's have more conversation. Yeah. Um, just to, I don't know if this is a defense of, of, of Singer's statements, but I, I wonder if to some extent he, he makes those kinds of, those particular kinds of exclusionary provocative statements as a way of kind of saying, look, you know, yes, I think animals are valuable, but I don't think everything's valuable. Gosh darn it! You know, there are some, I, there are limits, and I, I can be a badass too. Um, yeah. It's just that I think that we're drawing the wrong lines, and it's he kind of does it in an extreme way. To I mean, it's, I can I have no idea, uh, but it, I can imagine a strategy along the line, a rhetorical strategy along the lines of, you know, I, so that I don't, so that my position is not perceived as just you know, too soft and without, and without limits. So I'm going to draw these kind of very provocative lines as a way of, of showing that, um, you know, my view doesn't just lead to kind of everything has, everything has value and and too much softness. I mean, you can see that that's kind of a useful accounting exercise for him. Um, but I often, I, when I, the things that I find persuasive about Singer are the constructive bits where he says, mm-hmm. well, look, here's what's it like to be a factory farmed animal. Um, mm-hmm. Let me tell you. Now, I notice that I find I respond to that enormously. And, and that's sort of, yeah, I mean, that's that I get that. But then when I look at the bit that says where he's saying, well, I, look, I'm not crazy. I'm telling you to care about a lot of stuff you would rather not care about because you like eating meat. But I, I find the, look, I'm not crazy. I'm going to ban some things, but that was done much more hastily. Mm. And it's sort of foreclosure. So one of the things I tried to do in life's intrinsic value was to say, well, I don't know. I don't want to be crazy either, but if we count, <laughs> we, if we count these things as valuable, and when we go beyond saying that the, the tree with the flooded roots, that's nothing, we go beyond. So we say, well, it was something. It's dead now. So, yes, it's not alive. That we can actually, you can, if you, it's, it's difficult. But, I mean, is, is philosophy supposed to be all easy? Yeah. That's why philosophers get paid the big bucks, right? Yeah, yeah. well, we, we get paid the little bucks. <laughs> <laughs> some bucks yeah, anyway. Some bucks. 
<laughs> um, I'm curious what you're as, as we're as we're kind of talking about you know this intersection of um, you know kind of folk different ways of, of folk theorizing about relationship to nature. Um, one of the big movements, and I've written a, a little bit about this in the last couple of years, uh, big movements in global environmental law is around the, the notion of environmental rights um, and s- specifically nature's rights. So um, establishing legal, legal rights for nature in general or for rivers or landscapes or mountains. Um, I, I've expressed some skepticism about, about this particular view but I wonder um, what your take is of, of, of these ideas. Um, you know, obviously what you've written in the past is, is organism focused and then ecosystems and species and the like can have um, value. What I take to be your argument is kind of due to the relationship of those higher level collectives to individual organisms and, and their yeah. life cycles and so on. Um, so what, what then do we make of the of the nature's? What, or what, I'm curious what your thoughts have, have been if you've followed that at all. Or so, I mean, here's I mean, my, can I just basically present yeah. one of my not very well considered biases? I mean, I come from a part of the world philosophically <laughs> where rights talk is kind of we we view that mm-hmm. as a sort of a well, not exclusively, but uh, I mean, it's. It's not an Australasian thing as much. I mean, you know, there are some philosophers mm. that do talk about rights. So, and I guess in a way, my view is, I mean, if you want living, if you want nature to count, then the great thing about rights talk is that it does connect it with, I mean, it's easy to integrate with legal protections because you can say, well, I mean, you know, there are philosophers complaining about what rights are, whether they're just constructs, human constructs. Um, but the good thing about too, if I really want to have laws that count, if I can formulate this in terms of rights, then that's something I can immediately go to a legal scholar, um, someone like you and say, yes, can you, what, what would be a policy? I mean, you know, how do we respect these rights? And I like that. So in a way, so when I think about getting things in the moral accounting book, getting them to count at all. I, I, I suppose I come from a tradition which started with sort of a utilitarian tradition that started with, I don't know, can it feel? If it feels, it definitely counts. So, yes, that's just a statement about, I don't know, where I came from, where I originated philosophically. But, um, but yes, so, I mean, in a way, the great thing about rights talk, even if some people proclaim not to understand it at all, is it connects with legal protection. So has that prag- there's a practical pragmatic value to to rights talk, even if we don't necessarily, even if a legal regime of nature's rights doesn't map onto in a clean way morally important um, interests. Yeah. Um, in as much as they are a practical way of of protecting those interests or forwarding those interests, then you know, then it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it can be a useful thing. I mean, it's a bit like I mean, I guess the earlier the ch- our earlier chat about uh, you know I. Uh, the tree spirit. I mean, in a way that mm-hmm. I don't really know what that, I don't know what that is. I mean, I guess I'd have to ask someone who believes that there's a spirit in the tree and I'd probably find out something there, but I bet I would still remain quite perplexed. 
But then as a pragmatic thing, I look at, I don't know, you look at what sort of Maori in New Zealand do. They had similar such beliefs. They tended to try to protect. They certainly protect protected uh, trees from the destructive sort of impulses of the market. Mm. They, they did those things. So it's sort of like, yes, I'm confused, but um, yeah, there's a good thing too. Yeah, that's interesting. At a sort of a pragmatic level. Yeah, so it's a, you know, we can think of the consequences of, of beliefs in addition to their, uh, the kind of their truth content, right? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of almost like, I don't know, I have a sense. There are many people I disagree with. And when I, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I'm not a Christian, but when I look at many Christians and some, certainly some of the things that they recommend make sense to me. And I recognize that my atheistic tradition struggles to make sense of that. And I sort of so I'm, I, you're not everything that Christians say, obviously, I view in this way. But many things, they say, when they say, well, that matters. And I say, well, I don't really understand that. I mean, because that's not, I don't, I, I, your holy book is not my holy book. But so this is what you're going to do as a consequence of that. I like that. And of course, in a pluralistic society, you know, we, we, we make do with agreeing about um, ends and, yeah. and, and agreeing about, you know, choices that we make collectively, even if we don't agree for, about the reasons for those choices. And, and that's to be expected and, and perfectly fine and, and maybe to be celebrated. Well, way. that's moral debate, moral discussion. I guess then sort of in a way there's philosophers sometimes have this idea that basically if you can formulate a powerful enough argument, you'll convince everyone. So I, I don't believe in that, but I do think, mm -hmm. well, well, oh gosh, that's your conclusion. Well, I don't know. It's a philosophy paper. There's a whole lot of stuff in there that I don't have time to read, but, um, but that's your conclusion. Count me in. Yeah. It goes a long way. It's certainly in practical politics. Yeah. Um, maybe just shifting gears a little bit. Um, not, not, not very much, but just a, a slight shade on the, on the conversation is, um, part of what I think is, is fun in um, less intrinsic value and, and a lot of your work is that there's a, a interdisciplinary element to it. Um, and in particular, a kind of ongoing conversation uh, between the humanities and specifically your discipline of philosophy. And in particular, um, you know, hard sciences, physical sciences, life sciences, um, technological development. Um, I assume that, you know, in your recent work, you're very interested in information technology, digital technology, and that's, you know, that's a whole technical discipline as well. Um, one just thought that comes to mind is, is what, what initially drew you to that intersection of, you know, a, what is often a, a difficult and fraught terrain with the intersection of humanities and, and the sciences, and, and what have you found uh, productive or or challenging at that at that intersection as a as a humanist and philosopher moral philosopher. Well, one of the things that I really love, by the way, is the conversation. So, right, you're a legal scholar. I'm having a conversation with yep. you, and I'm enjoying it. Now, in a way, one of the things: how do these conversations work? And there are ways for them not to work. So, if I was to take a I don't know a philosophy, a very sort of you know the kind of a philosophy paper published in an analytic philosophy journal, um, and that would not be a productive way to have a conversation. So, I I think the way the my view is that the way the academy is currently set up, um, 
is it's hard it's too hard to have these conversations so there's kind of like we say that we want to be interdisciplinary but the design of the academy is tragically sort of made so sort of in a way these this conversation is quite a rare thing and mm-hmm. it's too rare but um one thing and you know, if you were to suddenly sort of go into some of the the legal detail of your work well i'd be out so I'd say, Michael, mm-hmm. I'm not enjoying this conversation because I just don't know much about that. So anyway, <laughs> it, I'll just let it you got, talk. It got very boring very fast. Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, it would be interesting. <laughs> it's, it's interesting for ins- academic insiders. But see, these convers- this conversation, there are many arguments. And, and so that these convers- we're having an interdisciplinary conversation right now. And right. from my perspective, it's going very well. And from my perspective, I've learned some stuff from what you've said. Now, I think the I mean, I guess if I was to remake universities, um, uh, which I don't expect to happen, I mean, you know, things like climate change wouldn't be something that is dealt with in the way it is currently. So, you know, you can certainly get a philosopher to talk about climate change, and there are some. And there are some great philosophers talking about climate change. You can get economists to talk about climate change. But um, often, sort of in a way, given the journals, you know, for economists tend to publish in economics journals that are read mainly by economists. Not exclusively, but mainly. That's the main market. Philosophers publish in philosophy journals, and they tend to be read by philosophers. But so there's almost like, and the one problem is, I don't know, if we were to say, let's publish this conversation, the insights that we've gleaned from it and send it to a journal, well, it's quite a broad-ranging conversation. It's a very interdisciplinary conversation. And from the perspective of your discipline, law, it looks shallow. From the perspective of philosophy, my discipline, it looks shallow. But for interdisciplinary conversations to happen and be successful, we have to sacrifice some depth. I mean, philosophers are famous for in-depth, going in-depth, and, you know, this question, this question, this question. But each time they add another question, it's almost like you are already saying, oh, I think I've had enough of this. You know, in a way, this is, you, you want, I mean, interdisciplinary conversations require breadth and maybe a sacrifice of depth without being conflated. I mean, this is not a, I don't think this is a shallow conversation. But we're not going to right. be looking at many different formulations of, I don't know, philosophers' theories about how sentience counts morally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, this. This is, I think, just the, like the question of um, of interdisciplinary work in general. In some senses, is the is the breadth depth trade off, mm. and and it's so. So at a law school, at least a, at a U.S. law school, one of the interesting things is what draws scholars together is an object of study rather than a methodology, Mm -hmm. generally speaking. And so, you know, we have, I'm a faculty at UVA, we have economists and philosophers and um, historians. Those are, you know, three disciplines that are very prevalent in law schools. And then you'll also have political scientists and anthropologists and and so on. Some people with science backgrounds occasionally. Um, And, and so it's it's a fun interdisciplinary environment for that reason because there is a um, 
you know, there's a sense where, you know, the philosophers are going to talk to the economists and the economists are going to talk to the historians and that's just expected. Um, but there, there's always the tension between, you know, with respect to the, to the economists, you know, what, what is the value to the economists of getting feedback from the historians? There's almost, it's, it's, it's like, a tension that is always constantly being negotiated because yeah, <laughs> there's, there's often something there, but there's, but there's sometimes there isn't anything there. And there's certainly domains or the economist vis-a-vis the historian or, you know, or, you know, uh, philosopher, a, a, a deontologically oriented philosopher talking to, uh, 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 you know, a more consequentialist welfareist economist, um, you know, you could just recapitulate debates between, you know, the, the pros and cons of your, you know, utilitarianism, but that, that's not necessarily all that productive either. No, but I mean, I think often, I, I just think it's built into us as questioning reasoning beings that you, I mean, I, mm. one of the issues that I've been, I mean, I've been trying as a philosopher to engage with some economists on the future of work. And mm. it's, it's interesting because they certainly have, I mean, ever since John Maynard Keynes, I mean, in a way, their view about the future of work or our view. Um, so the tendency, for example, for me as a philosopher talking at, about economists is, yeah, if I'm just talking to other philosophers, I get to oversimplify. So I get to mm. say, basically, look at what John Maynard Keynes said about technological unemployment and just say, right. well, all economists, what do they think? They just think that technological unemployment is temporary. It's painful. You lose your job. You're no longer, uh, you know, the power loom comes and you're not, you know, hand loom. You can't be that, but don't worry. Your kids will be fine. So it's always temporary. And so that's, I guess that from a distance, that would be the view from economics. But when you talk to an economist, of course, they say, well, no, there are actually quite a few views within economics. And it's sort of, that's the bread thing too, because you know, and if I'm just if I'm just being a, a deep or aspiring for philosophical depth philosopher, well, and I think well, I'm you know, philosophers would be reading me. They won't care if I oversimplify the economics, mm-hmm. and the economists when they talk about philosophy, they won't care. You know, the other economists won't care if you oversimplify the philosophers. So I, I think these conversations when people say that they're impossible. Yeah, I would cite this exchange as proof positive that they can happen and they do happen and they're productive. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, the there's there's some cost or there's some um, effort that goes into interdisciplinary work and interdisciplinary conversations. But I think there is actually something structurally about them that uh, at least in expectation to use an, an economics kind of idea, uh, leads to bigger returns. Yeah. Um, where, you know, you know, if you're deep in a discipline, it's very hard to make a lot of progress, mm. you know, that you're, you're in a, you're in a research program and you can chip, chip away at problems. That's the idea of, of deep research programs, I think. Yeah. Um, but when you break out of that and you 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 know you kind of explore an entirely new space, which which is not which doesn't have a research program and a lot of progress hasn't been made, uh, sometimes there's nothing there and sometimes there are big things there. Yeah, but and often just this the synergies and bringing two ideas together and saying, what happens if I put this idea that I got from anthropology, weird idea, but I'm going to mm-hmm. try it out with this. Now, 
Yeah. That's, I think that's kind of the interdisciplinary urge there. Yeah. And I think, and it, and it, and it can have, it can have, it can have big, big payoffs. I think we've, we, we do see that. Um, th- speaking of the, of the work that you've been doing on, um, you know, on the, on the future economy, your, your most recent book, how to be human in the digital economy, um, touches on a lot of those, a lot of these themes very much, um, you know, thinking about what the future of work looks like in particular, uh, and, and the role of human work, uh, in a sense, I think a, a major move that I find in, in the book is, is reconceiving of work or conceiving of work in a way that, um, certainly traditionally economists have not, uh, conceived of work. Whereas if you were to just say the textbook economic understanding of work is that it's a disutility. Mm, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's something that we trade, we trade our labor. We would prefer not to. Um, but, uh, at the same time, uh, we're willing to do it because we get paid and that's just, that's just the way yeah. it works. Um, and I, I take the part of the project of the book is to think of work as, as something other than just purely a disutility that we would we would happily turn over to the machines if we could, and 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 what is the place for human labor in a world where, in, in theory, we could turn lots over to machines, um, but maybe we don't want to. Yeah, well, I, I I think work should be fun, and I think it's one of the great you know the sort of when you talk about wealth inequality, I mean it's pleasurable work inequality, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. we certainly have mm-hmm. people who love their work. And they, you know, the, so, so sadly, the best paid, and that's an overgeneralization, tend to have the most enjoyable work. Um, but the worst paid tend to have horrible work. So, in a way, if you were to quiz, uh, um, a, I don't know, I don't want to overgeneralize here, but many Uber drivers, they might say, oh, no, yes, this is the, the conditions under which I, I like driving people around, but the conditions of my work are not great. I would give it up if I didn't have to. And it, whereas, I don't know, if you ask Matt Damon, you know, do, do, you, do you enjoy your work? I mean, I bet he says, I love it. Um, he doesn't have to. I mean, he could quit, right? He, he could absolutely quit. could feed his family without, yeah. without doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so it's in a way, how do we... And, but it's not only, yeah, I mean, very few people can be Matt Damon. But um, a lot of people can get enjoyable work. does involve connections with other human beings. People become depressed when they're not mm-hmm. with other human beings. We're an obligatorily gregarious species. And so, you know, if you're looking at ways to torture people, well, you can waterboard them, and that will work. But you mm-hmm. can also just uh, lock them up. Yeah, keep them fit. That's horrible. Yeah, and then yeah. just see. Uh, yeah, it's very hard for an obligatorily gregarious species, a member of a obligatorily, obligatorily gregarious species, to survive solitary and, and, and confinement because that's yeah we thrive under those conditions. So in a way, if we were to, I don't know, look at the give the jobs. I mean, because I think machines do have an advantage in certain categories of work and. Yes, I mean, I guess you know when you have your your ultrasound or whatever. I mean, you should probably celebrate the fact that in the future um, any anomalies will be detected by a machine. It will be better than the human. So that, those jobs we should sell. I, you know, and in the future, I don't know if I really want to be driven around by a human pilot. Um, I, that doesn't seem humans get distracted. Humans know there are autopilots and they get lazy. Um, 
So those jobs go, but if we could actually compensate by saying that there are, I mean, I, I don't want to make it too simplistic, but people love helping other people and, and they quite like connecting with strangers. And that's, those are the work, that's the work that people love. If I say to you, Michael, can you help me? I need some help. I bet that probably creates a new, I bet it kind of creates an urge to help. And I think if you could help me, you might enjoy doing it. So those kinds yeah. of jobs, I think we can create a lot of those because they require us and we require them to avoid being, I don't know, depressed, isolated, sort of locked in people watching Netflix all day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting that we, we talk about this in terms, in terms of work. And I, I, you know, I think that that is, it's, it's absolutely the case that, um, you know, there are certain sectors of the economy where people enjoy their work and it's often higher paid sectors. Uh, one of the things I, so my brother is a, is also an academic. We didn't come from an academic family. We just kind of ended up both doing this, this kind of work. And, um, <laughs> we sometimes joke, we say, you know, the stuff we do 200 years ago, it just wouldn't even be considered mm. work. It would just be called leisure. Like this is what you did with your free time if you had enough money is that you, you know, if you were in in the aristocratic class, you wrote, Hmm. you thought, you know, you you read the writings of other people. That's what leisure actually meant. Like what we're doing is not necessarily, or being a scientific researcher, you know, that, that kind of stuff, he's a, that's that's his work is, is, is kind of, is more pure Mm -hmm. science. Um, these are leisure activities. Yes. Yeah. No, no, that's interesting, isn't it? We make a distinction between leisure and work. But it's sort of when you describe work that involves connecting with other people, relationships between different minds and things like that. I mean, those are works that, I mean, I hope those categories, I hope they're expanded. And so part of what I do in the book is to say, well, I don't know. I mean, how can we create new work? Because I think lots of work, predictably, has a limited shelf. I mean, if exponent, if, if mm-hmm. digital tech, I mean, I don't know, will there be human pilots or in the, in the future? And the, I don't know, in 40 years time, or will, will there be signs across the, the door of the park that say no humans allowed? Because <laughs> right. I mean, the machines, the machines aren't perfect. You know, the machines will occasionally crash. They'll malfunction. I mean, you know, there were lots of examples but they'll crash less often than the human-driven plane, the human-flown planes, because um, they are improving, whereas human pilots can get a bit better. So I hope that we think creatively about how we can fill the space, how we can, I don't know, stop becoming isolated. I mean, there's, there's – um, John Cacioppo wrote a great book on loneliness and it just talked about the tendency in our society to isolate ourselves from each other. Now, one of the things that forces people out is having to turn up to work every day. Now you might say, well, I don't know. So we're, so I, I hope that we create lots of jobs that are both well enough paid so that people can say, well, look, you know, when I help, strangers these are not my friends or my family and it's not something i do for that reason it's something i do to i enjoy it but i contribute to society 
Yeah, I think so. So just to to be the to, to be the skeptical economist, yeah. economically oriented perspective on this. So I think there's there's two kinds of thoughts that you know one might one might offer. So one is, well, let's imagine this this future where the machines are doing the are doing the work. You know, the the work work, the the economic work, the disutility work, mm-hmm. the stuff that people really don't want to do. Yep. You know, isn't it enough to have a world of kind of volunteerism yep. where people? Um, yeah, you know, if there's something that they want to do, they'll they can have a community center or they can have a an art an art gallery. Everyone, you know, in this world will have enough money if we live in an egalitarian society with high productivity. And you know, what what do we need work for in in that kind of world? And I think part of the argument might be it's a way of when someone's paid for their job, it's a way of um, signaling that it has social value. But maybe you know. Maybe we don't need that. Maybe just the, the pure experience of doing it and the fact that, um, you know, someone asks you to do it and, and you're expected to show up to your volunteer position um, the same way you're expected to show up to your yoga class and, and that gets you off your butt, um, that that's kind of sufficient. Do we do we need to have the, the, the exchange economy as part of this world um, in order to generate the types of social relationships that, that you're interested in preserving? Well, I mean, I, I so that, that's a great question. And I, I don't want to sort of answer that in a way that suggests, no, yes, we definitely must. I'm the philosopher mm-hmm. I've decided. But here's something that I think a risk that emerges from that volunteerist approach. Yes, because we won't just, I mean, because it, it's sad, isn't it, that when people make predictions about how much TV they'll watch, they, they tended to say <laughs> they watch people watch what much watch much more TV than they predict they will, um, mm-hmm. which is not a great thing. So they do just turn on the TV because it's easy. But one of the things that I mean, if I'm going to, I mean, it's hard to sort of in a way we have this. This is something sort of in a way that we. I mean, it's, I don't want to know how to put it sort of more plainly, and I think it's become apparent. We we fear people who are different from us. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, I guess when you turn up to your big sort of racially, culturally mixed college and you say, what, I'll meet lots of different kinds of people here. I mean, there's a sad pattern where the, I don't know, the black kids find the black kids, the white kids find the white kids, the Asian kids find the, the Asian kids. So they seek out people who resemble them in ways. And, and one of the great things about work I mean, if if I'm working at a Starbucks, um, yeah, I mean, maybe there'll be people who look like me and speak with my accent or come in, I'll feel more relaxed with them, but they won't be the only ones who I have to help. And there's sort of data evidence that suggests that the more, work is great because it places you in a consequence where you're dealing with people who don't look like you often. You might, oh, well, I don't know about that person. I mean, I don't, they worship mm-hmm. a strange God, so oh, a bit, a bit mm-hmm. shy about that. But when you, I, when you assign people a, a task, um, that they tend, to, they tend to get over it. I mean, if I have to work with the person whose skin color is different from my own and I maybe feel a bit distrustful, that when we have to actually work together to do something because it's part of our job, that barrier evaporates. So I think that's one of the advantages. If you, in a way, I worry about the volunteerism, the volunteerist sort of mm-hmm. replacement for work, where it sort of says, well, okay, who do, I feel, who do I feel most comfortable with? Well, 
I don't know, Australasians who sound like me. They're my kind. Right. I will help them. And, but that's okay because the other people who don't look like me, well, they'll be helped by their people. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way that sort of when we talk about the disintegration of the uh, sort of modern sort of technologically advanced societies, um, work I view as a, a sort of a countervailing force for that because it forces us to work with each other and it forces me to connect with people I might feel quite shy about. And and so just to to drill down on that a little bit, so it's a it's a it's very interesting because it's very um, it's kind of pro market pro pro you know commerce yeah, well, in a way you know sort of that's what but, we but have from a very different right okay that's true we could have another kind of institution yeah. that organized work yeah well I mean I don't know I mean it's in a way it's almost like sort of a matter of sort of in a way working with what you've got so mm-hmm. I would love. You know, in a way, yeah. I mean, if you look at my political moral ideas, yes, I would love a society in which everyone, you know, give to everyone according to their needs and take. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that would be that's not the fantasy world, but it's. And if you're wanting to make progress, then I don't know. I mean, it sounds funny, isn't it? I mean, paying people to work with people and to form to collaborate with people who are different from them is a mechanism that we currently have that works. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just kind of pragmatic. And then the, and just to, to be clear that the benefit out of this, it sounds like it's twofold. Um, there's the benefit of kind of social cohesion mm-hmm. that if we were to allow ourselves to further bubbleize ours, yeah. you know, we're so in our bubbles already. Yeah, well, if we didn't have to go to work and collaborate with others who might be different than us, then we'd really be in trouble that maybe society would fall apart. Um, but also there's the, the, the maybe even a, a kind of a, a, a trying to think exactly how to characterize it, either a maybe paternalistic, um, it's good. It will be good for me. And society can say it is good for, for me to work or for, a person to work because their own, you know, natural instincts might be bad for them and they would be better off um, if we could kind of shape and incentivize their behavior um, for their own benefit. Or maybe it's a virtue kind of story where we're kind of structuring society um, to inculcate a certain kind of um, uh, way of being in the world that's, that's, that's better which is to say, you know, more open-minded and, and, and pluralistic. Well, I would hope, I mean, I guess my fantasy for the future is a social digital economy where we sort of, in a way, the work we do is increasingly social. Mm-hmm. And that's good for us because it involves being with other people. And I guess, mm-hmm. well, we've got this market economy, which, which are not, you may fantasize about getting rid of it, but it will, does mm-hmm. require me to work with people who are different from me and to collaborate with them. And that's good because in my experiences of having, yeah, I mean, it's been a universal experience that when I have a conversation with someone who speaks with a different accent or looks different or clearly worships a God that I don't worship, those conversations, if I'm curious and open, they tend to go very well. I come out thinking, wow, okay. You know, like just even if it's just simply having a conversation with your Uber driver, Right. You you pay your fare, you know, you don't pay for the conversation, but you come out thinking, Wow, I mean I, that 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 person was from Nepal. 
I have never been to Nepal. And I've learned something about what it's like to be a Nepalese person living in Australia. And, and I don't, it sounds naive and simplistic, but I enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't have had that conversation if I didn't get into the Uber. Excuse me, you look mm -hmm. Nepalese. Can I have a chat with you? I mean, that, that's not the way it works. But here I am sitting in an Uber, right. and we've got to talk about something. Otherwise, I just silent, sit silently as he gives me an Uber rating of two. Um, um, but why not have a conversation? They tend to go well. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's interesting about this, too, is just that it's this tension between people um, – you know, that that's right, that that's how we enrich our lives is by socially interacting with, with, with folks, um, you know, that are similar to us, that are not as similar to us. And that's a, a big part of what makes a good life. Um, but yet there's something about human nature that, um, that we don't automatically do that. No. That we need social circumstances, that we will sit at home watching Netflix or playing mm -hmm. video games rather than engage. And that I think is just a, it's a fascinating, again, the, for an economist, they were just like, this is bizarre, right? Like if, why, if people want, if it's good for people, why don't they just do it? Why do you have to create structures? No, for yeah. Um, but it's such an interesting psychological reality of, of humans that we will tend to isolate, even though we are, you know, kind of, as you say, socially, obligates or gregarious obligates yeah, yeah yeah well we we sort of in a way it's a bit like i don't know probably many of us would be healthier if we did more exercise and we know that right but right. who does all the exercise that they should um right. no so that's a fact if you could someone says to you get out and have a walk uh it's typically good advice and yet if the tv's on um, I mean, that's something that we know about ourselves. We don't often make good choices and we need some, some nudges, I guess, to, to use that, uh, overused term in order to do what's good for us. And I think, you know, being with other people, people who are different from us, um, is also something that we need to be prompted to do. Yeah. So, so the other part, part of this then is we should, probably be paid to exercise well um, <laughs> so that which would probably which would be a, a good thing actually well, i don't know it's sort of in a way when i think about incentives i mean i guess one of the problems with paying people to exercise is um i guess it would cut you know that study of kids and reading and so they noticed mm -hmm. that certain kids weren't reading and then they yeah if you pay them right, to read they would, them out. yeah and but when they the money stops the reading stops too yeah so yep. how do you i mean i i don't yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't have an answer to that, but I know that in general we'd be better off if we, I don't know, socialized with people who are different right. for us, um, and maybe if we went for more walks. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect if we, were, we walk with other people, you know, that, that actually is a is is an interesting feature of the work, the relationship between work and socializing is. Just exactly what you said. When the money stops, the um, the behavior stops. I mean, this is this is retirement. I mean, yeah. many people when they retire and they aren't required to go into a work environment anymore, their degree of social isolation just skyrockets. Yeah. And this is and 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 this is a this is a serious issue in in many societies, especially where you know people's kids move away and. Um, you know, they, they just find themselves utterly alone be, 
in part because that structure of work is gone. That's a a great example. And there was a great French program that I wrote a bit about. I'm going to say, I'm going to speak French here and it will be a disaster. Veuillez sur mes parents. So if anyone is French who's listening, I apologize. But looking looking (laughs) into my parents, and it was basically just, it was creating work. So it was a, a use of French postal workers. And it was really creative. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess people don't send many letters anymore. And it means that French postal workers, they don't have to do, you know, daily rounds delivering the very few letters that are, you know, there's less work. Mm. And so someone had the brilliant idea of saying, well, we've got these postal workers. Yeah, they can still deliver the mail. But what happens if we pay them to look in on on isolated older people? Mm. Mm. And it's everything you read about. There was a thing in the New Yorker. It was a great piece. It just looked magical Mm. because people, these these sort of French postal workers, I hope it's still going on, who were probably, yeah, they were in their 50s or whatever. It's probably like, well, they were about to be laid off probably. Mm. And it was, well, there is a problem. And all I want you to do is to go around to these addresses and have a conversation with these people who are very isolated. Mm. That's, yeah, I mean, I think that's those that there are the full of, there are so many creative solutions to this problem that if you look, I mean, I, I found this piece. I thought, well, that's, that's genius. And it's, I think if we think in those terms, then there's lots of, it's almost like killing, um, you know, one stone, two birds kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If that's a, maybe, maybe on an environmental ethics sort of podcast, that's right. not the best analogy. <laughs> we, did a new, we did a new analogy. Yeah, right? yeah. But I mean, it's like um, the postal worker keeps their job. Mm-hmm. And the, the shut-in older person has someone to talk to. Yeah. And that's great. It's such a different solution than what you often, or one category of, you know, addressing this issue that that you do see is, you know, the the kind of caring robots, Mm. that that's the kind of a go-to way of addressing social isolation, especially for older folks is, you know, we're going to put a a chicken in every pot and a robot in every living room. Um, And that, that, Seems less attractive. Well, it's kind of thing, isn't it? You sort of like, if you want to play to the strengths of machine learners and things like that, well, have them fly our aeroplanes. Now, mm-hmm. I guess there are so many, there's a trope in sci-fi movies about, I don't know, sex bots and, you know, befriending robots. I mean, that, but it's, um, humans are quite good at having sex with each other. Humans are quite good at befriending each other. We're kind of built to okay. do that. I mean, uh, there are horror mm-hmm. stories. But that's not sort of in a way they tend not to be the norm. So if you were to form a relationship, yes, it's sort of like an option of desperation, isn't it? And it's the sad thing is with this, I don't know, the technological imperative, sex bots and social robots are cool. But uh, that would be, I mean, if we could actually, I don't know, resist that urge Mm -hmm. to realize that world and instead say, well, that's, put human beings in each other's lives. I mean, there are things that, gosh, surprisingly, go exactly with with our social instincts and that we're good at. We may not be good at detecting, you know, 
precancerous growths on ultrasounds. We're not built for that, but we are mm. we are built for dropping in and having a conversation about what the weather's like with a socially isolated person. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've been that. That is definitely you know something that has been happening in our evolutionary environment for yeah. a very very long time. We can do yeah. it. Well, well, Nick, uh, I, I suspect we could we could keep talking for for some time, but um, I, I appreciate your generosity of, of taking the time to to chat with me already. It's been a it's been a fascinating um, uh, conversation. Thank you.